that as we go through the holidays. It's a very short book. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, it might be helpful for you to have them there. It's right near the end, the last couple of books of the Bible. Um, and it is short, but there's quite a lot in it. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll get stuck in. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we get started, let's get a little bit of context for this letter. Let's work out who wrote it. And it tells us at the beginning, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus. And we know quite a lot about Peter. He was one of the first followers chosen by Jesus. He was the first to recognise who Jesus really was. He was the one who said, you are the Christ. But he immediately misunderstood what Jesus came for and also earned that massive rebuke from Jesus when he said, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. So we know that Peter has some highs and he has some lows. He's also the one that at the end of Jesus' life said that he, Peter, would be better than everybody else who followed Jesus. He said that if, even if everybody else falls away, he never would. But Jesus says to him that before the day's done, he'll fall away too. And when Peter hears the rooster crow, he knows that he has denied Jesus three times. But then he was among the first to see the empty tomb. He was also one of the first to see Jesus resurrected. And for Peter, it changed everything. So this frightened, fragile fisherman stood in front of a massive crowd, a hostile crowd, and proclaimed that this man that you killed, Jesus, God has made Lord of the universe. He's raised him to life. And Peter declared to the crowd that you need to repent and turn to Jesus because only in him is there forgiveness. And God used this preaching to bring an extraordinary number of people to him that day. Peter was, with the other apostles, so gripped by what he'd seen. Can you imagine seeing a friend killed, three days later seeing them alive again, not resuscitated, but resurrected, alive, never to die again? Peter and the other apostles were so gripped by that that they preached it and preached it all around the ancient world, not worrying about having their lives disrupted and suffering. They suffered so much that in the end it led to Peter's death in probably around AD 64 when the Emperor Nero had him killed for being a follower of the Lord Jesus. He died for his convictions, for what he'd seen. So that's the one who's writing to us, Jesus' disciple, And he's writing to God's elect. And he calls us exiles. Some translations have aliens or foreigners who are scattered scattered around those provinces that are what is now modern-day Turkey. And Peter probably wrote from Rome, although we don't know that for sure. But he's not writing to a specific group of people or a specific church addressing a specific situation. He's writing to Christians in different churches, and this includes us. And Peter calls them and us God's elect. It's a term straight out of the Old Testament. Israel, the Jews, were God's elect. And now Peter, a Jew, is using the same term to refer to us, to Christians. 
So in a very quick way, he's connecting the whole, uh, the church to the whole of God's salvation from creation to new creation. And there's quite a lot in this chapter, quite a lot in this book, but it's summer and it's hot. So we're just going to um, stick to the second half of what we read today. And if it helps to have a Bible near you, um, you could open it at 1 Peter. We're going to concentrate mostly from verse 13 on, um, but I might make you look up some other verses too. If you're looking at verse 13, you'll see, well, hopefully some of the Bibles there will have a heading that says, Be Holy. That's not part of the original text, but the translators put it there to try and help us figure out what's coming next. So that's exactly what Peter's going to be talking about in the verses that follow. But if you're not sure what be holy means, he could have, we could have put a title there that says, live differently. Or if it's helpful to have a question there, how do we live new life? So that's what we'll work through today. Peter's main message through this letter is encouragement to Christians to live differently. The world's going to tell us to go one way, but we need to stand firm and push against it. It seems that being a Christian and Christian ideas are increasingly being pushed to the fringes these days. And being a Christian is seen as being outmoded, outdated, old-fashioned or even irrelevant. Peter's message in the face of this is stand firm, <clears throat> Sorry, push against the world, live differently from the people around you in the world. And the reason we're called to live differently is because we already are different. A Christian is someone who's God's come to and made different. You're now an alien in the world, a foreigner. If you're a Christian, you're already different, so live differently. And we can see this, if we pick it up at verse 13, Peter begins with the phrase, therefore, so therefore we need to look back at what he's just said. And just like the passage we heard from Exodus at Sinai, where God has just saved his people and now he's speaking to them. Peter has just gone through the salvation brought to all of us through Jesus. And Peter describes this new salvation as new birth into a living hope. And later in verse 23, we see that Peter says, a Christian is someone who's been born again by the living, enduring word of God. The word, the gospel, the good news about Jesus isn't just an intellectual fact to ponder, although it is a fact, but it's more than that. It's a living and enduring word that, when it's accepted, brings new life. The Christian gets born all over again into a whole new person. You're redeemed, you're saved, and because you're remade, there's a whole new life to live. And new life is what we're all about here. And to get that new life, our job is to believe. Or as Peter puts it in verse 22, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Obeying the truth means to believe in God. To obey the truth is to hear the truth, the good news about Jesus, to say yes to it and believe in it. And by doing that, we purify ourselves. We have our sins washed away. And there's a little more to it. There's also a powerful God who takes us for himself. And there's a description of this right back at the beginning in verse 2. 
We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so God chooses us. Then we're sanctified by the Spirit, so we're set aside, being made holy by the work of the Spirit, as His Spirit lives in us and changes us. And we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And if that last part sounds a little strange, it's a shorthand way of saying that the act of Jesus willingly giving up his life and shedding his blood means that we have our sins washed away and we're forgiven and able to approach a holy God. So the Father chooses us, the Spirit makes us holy, the Son forgives our sins. God comes to us and does that work in us and we're different. And Peter doesn't want us to miss this, so the way he addresses Christians in this letter, he calls Christians aliens, exiles, foreigners, because we're that different. We no longer belong in this world. Peter wants us to know that this world is not our home. God's people are our people, so that means that some of the people we spend time with are not your people. You're going to feel like you don't belong if you're living as a Christian. This place isn't our home, those people aren't our people, and we're foreigners here. And that's a big thing to hear, I think. We're aliens in this world, and we're different. In verses 14 and 15, it says, As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, because just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all you do. Don't copy the way the world lives, live differently. God's purpose in redeeming us is so that we can be with him and become like him. And he's holy. So we're to be separate, set aside from this world. And it's helpful to understand that that's the basis on which God has called us to be holy. But I'll be honest and say that to be told to live differently and told that I'm an alien and I'm going to stand out and not fit in is a hard thing to hear and it's a hard thing to do. And I want to suggest that it's a hard thing to hear and to do for all of us because chances are we've all spent a large part of our lives trying to do the exact opposite. From an early age, sometimes subtly, sometimes subconsciously, we're just trying to figure out how to fit in and not stand out. We all want to be unique and special, but not that unique and special that we stand out. We want to fit in, and we want to find our people. We want to have friends. In fact, I would say the only way you can survive high school and some workplaces is to work out how to fit in, or at least to fly below the radar. So we've developed skills that help us to fit in, and then we open our Bible and God says, no, I want you to stand out. I've called you out so that you'll live differently. And this is what new life is. And I think that's hard to hear and hard to do, but Peter tells us it's absolutely worth it. And luckily Peter's going to help us to get it and to help us to do it. So then back at verse 13, Peter tells us to get serious, to be sober. He says to get sober a few times through this letter. 
And what they've translated there is be alert is actually much more fun in the original language. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, to gird up your loins meant to kind of pick up your tunic and tuck it into your undies ready to go for a run. It meant to be getting ready to run, getting ready to go into battle. These days we might say, let's roll up our sleeves and get on with it. But he says, gird up the loins of your mind. So get serious and be sober. And being sober is something that a lot of people aren't at this time of the year. But being sober-minded is the theme that runs through the whole letter. Be serious. And what does he mean? He means to be thinking clearly, to see clearly, and then act appropriately. And by contrast, what's the opposite of being sober? It's to be drunk or intoxicated, and what's that like? Well, when someone's intoxicated, their senses are impaired, their vision can be blurry, their thinking is foggy and delayed, and so is their reaction time. Their reactions are off. They misjudge reality. They can't properly see the reality in front of them. So they either overreact or underreact. You can't see what's coming for you. And so we have laws that say you can't operate machinery or drive vehicles when intoxicated because you can't see reality clearly and you'll not act appropriately. You're going to make wrong judgments. And this is what Peter's talking about. The world around us is intoxicating. It will impair our vision, cloud our thinking, and cause us to make poor judgments and act inappropriately. And Peter's saying more than just don't get drunk, although he probably means that too. He's saying get serious, roll up your sleeves, gird up the loins of your mind and be alert and aware of what's around you. Live in a way that you see the reality of what is around you, think clearly about it, and you'll react well and act appropriately. Peter wants us to know that for Christians there are two big things coming for us and that we should prepare ourselves so that we can respond well. And the two things that are coming for us are the grace of Jesus and the judgment of the Father. So let's look at these things and see what we can with sober minds. So from verse 13, Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. If you're alert, and aware you'll see that Jesus is coming and for the Christian he comes with incredible grace your final salvation is coming and if you're alert and aware you'll see it coming and you'll set your hope on it it will become your focus you'll long for it you'll spend your time daydreaming about it or as verse 6 puts it you'll greatly rejoice in it it's coming It's what you think about. So let's think about it now. It means one day soon you get to go home, your real home. There's an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. It's the treasures of God. And in the end, it's the treasure of being able to be in the presence of God himself and be face to face with Jesus, your Lord, your King, your saviour, your brother. 
And as you find yourself in your inheritance, your home. Sin is gone. Death is gone. Pain is gone. Suffering is gone. Tears are gone. Joy explodes. Comfort is unending. You have the connection with others and with God that you've always longed for. The security that we've always wanted is there and guaranteed your significance is fully realised. That's the grace that's coming for you. Can we see it? Can we focus on this grace that's coming with Jesus, the salvation that's on its way? Now, if you're anything like me, you can admit that it's hard to stay focused on the grace of Jesus, which sounds silly, doesn't it? If what I've just described about the grace of Jesus is true, and it is true, how can we not be completely consumed by the grace that's coming? But sometimes we find it hard to stay focused on that grace, even though we know it's coming, and we kind of forget and get on with all the other things in life. Why is it hard for us to stay focused on the grace that we know is coming? Well, can I suggest that we get drunk? We roll our sleeves back down. We get intoxicated with the world. We get dizzy with the desire for the things in the here and now and they cloud our vision so we lose sight of the reality of the world and the grace that's on its way. And it happens easily. We build a desire for money because with money comes the promise of power or security and the opportunity just to do the things that we want to do. Or we grow a desire for success, whatever we think that looks like, in a career, at home with our families, or among our peers. We like to be seen as someone doing a pretty good job with our life, like we're winning, like we're living our best life. We might just have a desire just to really enjoy life. And we could do that through sport or hobbies, travel, holidays, good food or great experiences. Now, none of those things are bad things in themselves. Most of them are actually pretty good things. But here's what can happen. As we get tipsy with desire for the whole range of these things, they numb us spiritually. They cloud our vision and our thinking. And we can't see reality. And by reality, I mean the coming of our God and the grace that he's bringing and for which people think we're crazy for believing in. Yet that is reality. So how often do we get intoxicated with the world, tipsy with the here and now, and not living with clear eyes and minds on the reality of the things of God and the grace God brings to us in Jesus? We can easily crowd it out. Do we need to sober up a bit? And if we are sober, Peter tells us that it's not just grace that's coming. We'll also see the judgment of the Father. If you have a look at verse 17, Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time in reverent fear. So God's not just a Father who gives us good things, but he's also a judge who judges what we do impartially. He's the judge who watches everything, and nothing escapes his sight. So we should live in reverent fear. 
which is showing appropriate respect for him. In the end, the only thing that will matter is what God thinks of you and your life. It's easy to get caught up in what everybody else thinks of us, to fit in. But in the end, it'll be clear that the only thing that matters is what God thinks of us. And that's what it means to live in reverent fear. To understand that our God is our Father, but also our Judge. So if we're serious, spiritually sober, we'll be celebrating and focusing on the grace of God and living very concerned and carefully, understanding that our God is judge and he is holy. So how do we do this? How do we sober up? How do we gird up the loins of our minds? Now, you've probably heard all sorts of myths and bad advice for people who are physically drunk to sober up, but how do we spiritually sober up? And I hope none of these will be a surprise to you. First, if we skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that you grow up in your salvation. Peter's saying you'll be clear-minded when you grow up and stay clear on the things of God. And what will cause you to stay sober-minded and grow up in your salvation? Pure spiritual milk. What does he mean by that? He means the Word of God. We need to read it to think about it, to talk about it. We need to go deeper with Jesus. And when you read God's word, it's like you're drinking it in. It gives you spiritual nourishment. And nowhere here does Peter say, have a little bit every now and then if you think of it. He says we should crave it like a newborn craves milk. If you've come across a newborn, how do they crave milk? Do they let you know when they're ready? Will anything else do at that time? It's not optional for them. Babies instinctively know they need it for survival and our attitude to God's word is to be the same. But how easily do we go for a day without spiritual milk? How easily do we go for a week thinking... I can get to it now and then, but it's in the optional category. It's beneficial, It's beneficial, but we're busy. We're to crave it. We're to understand that it's essential to our lives and we need to develop the craving. And I think to do that, we need to understand it's an acquired taste. The way you learn to crave it is to continually sample it, keep trying it, invest in acquiring a taste for it. Because if it remains optional, you won't grow up in your salvation as God wants you to. Develop a taste, crave it daily, grow up in your salvation. So the word of God, I hope that's not a surprise, go deeper with Jesus. There's two more. The next one's prayer. Now, if you want to skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 7. Peter tells us the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you can pray. So if you're sober, you'll pray. I also want to suggest that if you pray, it sobers you up, so it's circular. One leads to the other and back to the beginning. Praying will get you sober, so pray. 
Make space to pray. Put the time aside. Don't try and fit it in. And keep praying. Because if we keep praying, we'll probably find ourselves thanking instead of asking. Because we start to appreciate the things that God's already given us. And we start to dwell on and think about our salvation. And we start to ask for things that are on God's heart in line with his desires and his purposes for the world and for us. So make space to pray and that will sober you up. And you'll be thinking about the world clearly and seeing clearly. So make space to pray and go deeper with Jesus. Read the word of God. And the third thing, be God's people and spend time with each other. Spend time with people like you people who are sober. Go deeper with other people. And don't think for a minute that the people that you hang around with won't impact and shape the way you think, feel and act in life. You can't help but be influenced by the people that you spend time with. They shape your thinking. So you have to spend at least some of your time with sober people. We need to invest heavily in God's people. We need to go deeper with others. We need to be shaped by how excited they are by God's grace in Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. I think that's a pretty strong call to invest in each other's lives. To love one another deeply from the heart. And if we do that, we'll find ourselves growing in our desire to love people and love the world. But we start with a deep love for God's people. That's how to where to invest in each other. And as we do that with other sober-minded people, our thinking will be shaped and we'll see more clearly the reality of the world that we live in. So we need to get serious and stay sober. Go deeper with Jesus through God's word. Make space to talk to God through prayer and go deeper with others through meeting with God's people. And as we get serious and stay sober, know this, as you see the reality and live according to that reality, anticipating what's coming, you're going to feel like an alien because you're living in a world that can't see reality because it's drunk with desire for everything else and its vision is fogged. So as you pursue this life of spiritual sobriety, know that you'll feel like a foreigner because you are one. God's changed you and made you his. So he says we're to be holy as he is holy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for this call from 1 Peter to sober up. Lord, we confess that we easily get intoxicated with this world, sometimes even drunk with desire for the things in this world. Lord, we want to hear the rebuke and snap ourselves out of our intoxication and be sober and see reality. We want to celebrate your incredible grace that's coming for us in Jesus and fix our eyes on that. And we want to live carefully 
in the light of the fact that you are judge. Help us to make space for you to go deeper with Jesus and to go deeper with each other. We want you to do that work in us by your Holy Spirit that you would get the glory. Amen.